Last time we spoke about the Battle of Tassafaranga. It was a defeat, but also a major humiliation for the American Navy. An American cruiser destroyer group lost to an inferior destroyer transport group that they had managed to take by surprise. The issue of the Mark 15 torpedoes was still plaguing the Americans, and would continue to do so well into 1943. Admiral Tanaka managed to perform his new drum technique, but little by little the IGN was losing their valuable destroyers, submarines, and transports. We also saw some more action along the Bunagona front, which had become a horrific war of attrition, one that the Japanese knew they would ultimately lose. General Harding was continuously throwing men against the fortified and well-concealed Japanese positions, causing a massive meat grinder. But soon, Harding would be replaced and some progress would be made. This episode is the fall of Gona. Welcome back to the Pacific War Week by Week podcast, and I'm your dutiful host, Craig Watson. But before we can begin, I just want to remind you all, this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of Kings and Generals over YouTube. Perhaps you want to learn a bit more about World War II? Kings and Generals is an assortment of episodes on World War II and much, much more. So go give them a look over at YouTube. So please, subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. And hey, don't forget about our sister podcast, Over at the Age of Conquest, the Fall and Rise of China podcast, written and narrated by me. And if after all that, you are still hungry for some more history, why don't you check out my personal channel, the Pacific War Channel, over at YouTube, where I'm currently releasing a seven-part series on China's warlord era. Give it a look, it would mean a lot to me. The chaotic, and to be perfectly honest, very confusing battle of Bunagona continued to rage on. The American 32nd Division, alongside the Australian Warren and Urbana forces, were struggling against the Japanese defenders. The Allied commanders failed to provide an effective amount of tanks or artillery necessary for the Bunagona offensive, mistakenly believing they could supplement this with aerial bombing. However, the Japanese camouflage efforts hindered any effective airstrikes, and to add insult to injury, friendly bombing occurred quite often. General Harding knew he needed tank support and requested some to be transported up from Milna Bay. Efforts were made to send a squadron of Stuart tanks towards Oro Bay, but there were no available transports to move them, leading General Close to send a platoon of Bren carriers on November the 22nd. By the end of November, 492 Americans of the 32nd Division had been killed, wounded, or taken out of action by the ever-present forces of malaria, dysentery, and scrub typhus. The American forces were mostly Greens, pitted against fresh, well-equipped, and battle-hardened veteran troops. Elsewhere, many of the Allied forces were facing non-combatants, or troops that had survived the horrible withdrawal along the Kokoda Track. The Australians began to send reports of the bad performance of the American infantry, and particularly the performance of General Harding. General Herring had Lieutenant Colonel William Robertson inspect Harding's headquarters. His reports indicated that Harding could hardly give any details on his infantry positions, explaining that he had lost touch with many of the forward troops. Harding's signal officers were not giving him any hope communications would be restored, complaining they found it too difficult to carry the divisional HQ wireless sets and many had simply tossed them into the bush miles back. 
Lieutenant Colonel Robertson was a very experienced officer and absolutely shocked by the situation and reported everything to Herring by November the 30th. Added to this, Lieutenant Colonel David Lahr and Major General Richard Sutherland had also visited Harding's HQ, and they reported, The men lacked the will to fight and lacked aggressive leadership. Sutherland simply recommended relieving Harding of command. General Douglas MacArthur was furious when he found out and immediately called upon General Eichelberger to take command of the American forces. MacArthur told him, I want you to remove all officers who won't fight. Relieve regimental and battalion commanders if necessary. Put sergeants in charge of battalions and corporals in charge of companies. I want you to take Buna, or not come back alive. MacArthur wanted the offensive to be rapid so he would not lose the chance to become the dominant leader in the Pacific, who could then make larger decisions. Ultimately, he wanted to take the reins and charge the U.S. back to the Philippines to make good on his promises. MacArthur was frustrated by the lack of progress and began to put pressure on his command chain, which would trigger rash actions and terrible mistakes, costing more and more lives in an offensive that should have simply resulted in starving them out, as they say. General Eichelberger arrived on December the 1st, and he witnessed how the Japanese defenses remained steadfast. The next day, Colonel Mott was attempting to flank Buna Village with some artillery support, but ultimately failed to gain any progress and had to pull back. Eichelberger was not impressed by Colonel Mott's performance, and personally accompanied General Harding and Waldron to the Urbana's front line to observe the failed December the 2nd action. Meanwhile, Eichelberger sent two of his most trusted officers, Colonel Gordon Rogers and Colonel Clarence Martin, to likewise check out the front lines over at the Warren Force. McNabb had planned a feint action towards Cape Endiadere after an aerial strike while the bulk of his coastal forces hit the eastern end of the new strip and a bridge to its northwest. The aerial strike was quite effective, but the follow-up ground offensive was not so much so. They had failed to take advantage, and the Japanese did not fall for the feint. Colonel Rogers said of the offensive and the men involved, Their clothing were in rags. Their shoes were uncared for or worn out. They were receiving far less than adequate rations, and there was little discipline or military courtesy. Troops were scattered along a trail towards the front line in small groups, engaged in eating, sleeping, during the time when they were supposed to be in an attack. Our patrols were dazed by hazards of swamp and jungle. They were unwilling to undertake the patrolling, which alone could safeguard their own interests. Over in the Urbana front, Eichelberger noted, The rear areas are strong, and the front line is weak. Inspired leadership is lacking. In a circuit of Buna village, I found men hungry, and generally without cigarettes and vitamins. Yesterday afternoon, the men immediately in contact with the Japanese had had no food since the day before. About 4 o'clock, the rations arrived, two tins of sea ration. Thus, Eichelberger relieved Harding of his command and placed the 32nd Division under General Waldron. And as MacArthur had said, Eichelberger began to shuffle the colonels and majors around. Colonel John Gross was given command of the Urbana Force, and Colonel Clarence Martin was given command of the Warren Force. Eichelberger also decided to give all the men two days of respite, to allow for the reorganization while plans were being made for frontal attacks for December the 5th. 
At this point, Colonel Yamamoto's forces were positioned in the outer camp around the Daropa plantation, and in the eastern sector around two airstrips. Captain Yusada's naval units were in the western sector around the village of Buna and its governmental station. The first action with the new reorganized Allied forces was an Australian plan to hit the Japanese defenses with Bren gun carriers. Now, Bren gun carriers were nothing like tanks. They were thin-skinned reconnaissance-based vehicles, and they were open at the top and unarmored below. Six A-20s attacked the Daropa plantation, followed by artillery on the early morning of December the 5th. And immediately after this, the machine gun crews of the Warren Force launched an attack up the coast supported by five Australian Bren gun carriers. The Japanese had moved out of their bunkers during the barrage, and they were now rushing back to man their machine guns to deliver heavy fire upon the enemy from their coastal barricade. The Bren gun carriers began to get caught on the uneven ground, and while stuck, the Japanese began to lob grenades and adhesion mines towards their vulnerable sides. The vehicles were also met with fire from anti-tank guns, and within 20 minutes, the Bren gun crews were badly mauled. Heavy fire from the Japanese forced the Americans to a half after they advanced only 40 meters. The Buna defenses were hit on two fronts as well on December the 5th. While the attack on the Daropa plantation was occurring, B-25s began to bomb Buna, while the nearby village was hit by artillery and motor fire. The Urbana force began their ground offensive, but could not advance because of the Japanese heavy fire. By the afternoon, the Urbana force had managed to push through a swampy area near the Japanese defenses just outside Buna village. The Americans attempted to bayonet charge the village, but they were quickly cut down by SNLF marines from their crawl trenches. However, some small but important progress would be made. G Company, led by the German Staff Sergeant, Butcher, took advantage of the opening, and he quickly overcame a number of Japanese. His 18-man company reached the sea and they began to dig in on a narrow sand spit just east of Buna village. And yes, you heard that right. Sergeant Butcher was born in Landsberg, Prussia. He was orphaned at an early age and he immigrated to Australia before going to America to live with his uncle. He volunteered during the Spanish Civil War, where he received valuable combat experience and earned three Spanish military decorations, including the Spanish Medal of Valor. When Pearl Harbor was attacked, he immediately took to active duty assigned to the 126th Regiment of the 32nd Division. Alongside Botcher's gain, the 128th Regiment also managed to gain control of Entrance Creek, an area of Coconut Grove as well. They dug in likewise, and while these two gains seemed tiny, in many ways they were turning points for the entire offensive, as now Buna Village was cut off from the landward help. It was only a matter of time before Captain Usada's position fell. The Urbana Force had its grip firmly around the throat of Buna Village, though it seemed a small gain after more than two weeks of bloody fighting. Despite the fact the Japanese had bunkers to shelter them during the bombardments, persistent motor fire had worn them down. The Japanese began fearing motors and artillery more than aerial bombardment because they happened so suddenly and without warning. At least you could hear the planes coming and get into position, but when the artillery strikes began, it was at a second's notice. While the Allied attacks made little advance, they slowly but surely were grinding down the defenders. Japanese diaries found at Buna were full of sorrows and complaints about rumored reinforcements that never seemed to arrive. Corporal 
Okajima wrote on December the 1st that they had been waiting for reinforcements for over four days. Another diary said he kept hearing reports of reinforcement landings, but these men never appeared. And then another diary read this. Somebody ate my whole day's rice ration, and three other rations were stolen. The defender's morale was breaking. The heat was unbearable. The tall kunai grass stopped airflow holding the heat down. Another diary from an unnamed soldier who had lost his original company and platoon commander read this. Under such circumstances, my body will be buried in New Guinea and become fertilizer for the soil of Buna. Early December saw the food supplies extremely low, but not yet at starvation levels. Lance Corporal Uchiyama, positioned in the eastern sector, recalled, We were continuously short of rations. Eating only once a day, and it was impossible to walk because of the lack of strength. Suffering from attacks of diarrhea all the time. On December the 10th, 30 planes would drop rations and ammunition, but these could not be properly distributed to the troops. Uchiyama wrote in his diary on December the 14th, Food was dropped twice by parachute, but did not come into our hands. These aerial efforts to drop supplies upon the Japanese, these were desperate actions. They were not well coordinated, and they fell all over the place. And even while many of the Japanese units managed to get their hands on these supplies, they certainly weren't sharing them equally. So as you can guess, someone like Uchiyama was in a unit that wasn't close to one of these drops. Eichelberger decided to wait for tanks and some more fresh Australian troops to be transported up from Milna Bay. The Australian 2 and 6th Armoured Regiment brought their 8 M3 Stuart tanks over by the night of December the 15th, landing at Oro Bay. Meanwhile, the Japanese kept their defensive lines as best as they could as the Allies pulled up 105mm howitzers and began firing delayed fuse shells at them. The Japanese called these earthquake bombs because they would lodge into the earth a bit before exploding, sending reverberations throughout the bunker walls. The Allied technology was still evolving, but basically you get the idea here. This would eventually become something like a bunker buster. The Americans also brought up two flamethrowers to burn out the Japanese bunker positions. You might have noticed we haven't really talked much about flamethrowers. That's partly because they only come into the war a bit later, but for those of you who've seen any combat footage, especially on uh, some of the islands, or let's say you've seen the uh, HBO's The Pacific series, fantastic series by the way, you would probably take note that flamethrowers were used very often, and especially to take out bunkers. You have to realize, particularly for the Americans in the Pacific, this is a, a learning experience. Many men are coming across defensive structures that, you know, military planners had not conceived were possible. Especially when it came to the Japanese. The Japanese were very innovative with little to work with. By the end of the war, as the Americans learnt more and more about how to go against these pillboxes and concealed bunkers and cave networks, my god, especially in Iwo Jima, flamethrowers became much more of the norm, and certain satchel bombs became more of the norm. 
But above all else, by the very end of the war, the most effective weapon turned out to be fire tanks. Very little the Japanese could do in their defensive structural positions to fight off a fire tank, that's to be sure. Now, the two flamethrowers were handled by a crew, and they managed to get within 10 meters of a bunker undetected before beginning to torch the crew inside. Four men were burnt alive, and the Allied forces were, as I said, gradually learning flamethrowers, and more specifically fire tanks in the future, would be disgustingly effective against the Japanese when they took up defensive positions in caves or bunkers. On the night of December the 15th, Yasuda sent a force of 100 men across the estuary, island of Musita, to relieve the village. They stormed the Americans, screamed as they did so, but they were repelled by motors and machine gun fire. While the Japanese had enjoyed more of an advantage on the Kokoda track, it involved more hand-to-hand -hand fighting. However, the Buna Gona offensive was much more open coastland and allowed for military technology to play a greater role, and thus this was to the disadvantage of the Japanese. The defenders of Buna village held their position tenaciously in the face of an absolute onslaught. Groups of motors were firing simultaneously in what can only be described as multiple hammer bombings. The position of the village defenders were simply unattainable. By the night of the 13th, the defender force was reduced to just 100 men whose supply line was cut off now for several days, while the Urbana force was bringing fresh troops for a major assault. The Japanese evacuated the village, running for Giruwa, leaving the Americans to storm an abandoned village. The Americans found the village huts were decimated by artillery, coconut palms lay in splinters all over. The bunkers were still well intact, but the Americans noticed there was just about no food anywhere, though a lot of equipment was left behind. Over in the Gona front, the Japanese had become encircled by the forces of Brigadier Ether and Doherty who were squeezing the Japanese perimeter, but at a high cost for both sides. On December the 2nd, the 2 and 14th Battalion headed up the coastal track to flank the Japanese at San Ananda, but the difficult swamp terrain would block their advance beyond Basabua. Brigadier Porter's 30th Brigade was earmarked to relieve Ethers, more spent units, and the 39th Battalion led by Colonel Honer was sent to reinforce the eastward offensive. Doherty took charge of the force, hoping to find a line of approach, but by December the 3rd, none were found. Thus, Vasey had to cancel the action. Instead, the 30th Brigade would be sent to fight in San Ananda's front, and only the 39th Battalion would remain under Doherty's command. The Australians by this point got word of General Yamagata's dispersed landing along the coast between the Kamusi and Amboga, prompting Doherty to launch a renewed offensive on December the 6th. The typical motor barrage occurred in the early morning, followed by a ground force offensive. The 39th Battalion found themselves quickly pinned down by heavy Japanese fire, making little to no progress as usual. Meanwhile, further west at Hattie's village, Lieutenant Hattie's force was reduced to 20 volunteers, all very weak and feverish. By the night of December the 6th, Yamagata's dispersed forces were joining up with the survivors of the 1st Battalion, 41st Regiment, totaling 280 men strong. Yamagata had the men dig gun posts around Gona Village, while the Australian patrols on their side of the Gona Creek tried to hunt for what they assumed to be remnant survivors of the Owen Stanley campaign, but were now a much larger and fresher group to their surprise. Considerably outnumbered, the Australians had to pull back. The Japanese began to encircle Hattie's men, 
but they were reinforced by 50 men of the 214th Battalion, leading to a bloody clash of patrol fights. Eventually, Hattie's force were pushed back 500 yards, and Lieutenant Hattie would die fiercely covering the withdrawal. As one eyewitness accounts state, Hattie ordered the withdrawal, stating that he would stay to the last. It is mentioned by all of his men that Hattie was always placing himself in such positions to enable his men to get out of tight corners, irrespective of the risk attached. At the time the Japs attacked, he was on sentry duty, and he was hit with a grenade. Lieutenant Hattie's body was found under a hut, and from the evidence around the hut, it proved that Hattie had fought to the last, killing many Japs before they finally got him. On the morning of December the 8th, Doherty was planning to toss his last throw against the enemy, but his fighting strength was down to 792 men, less than a full battalion. A typical event occurred, the defenders were hit with motor and artillery barrages, and when the Allied offenses began, it was halted by heavy machine gun fire. On December the 11th, another Allied patrol was pushed back across the Gona Creek by heavy Japanese fire, but then reinforcements arrived for the Australians. Another battalion came, and the balance of strength shifted at the Gona village. Australian scouts killed three Japanese officers near the village, and a newly arrived force began to make their way to the far side of the Japanese line, mounting a surprise attack across the swamp. During the firefight, an Australian charge was made, it was also halted, but they did manage to seize many posts and inflicted significant casualties. That night, a Japanese counterattack was made in the rain recovering some of the lost posts, but only a few. Aerial bombing and artillery took a toll on the Gona defenders for a few days, but they held tight. Yamagata and his immediate staff, however, withdrew to Napapo, three kilometers up the coast from Gona. The first echelon of the 21st Brigade was still waiting to safely land and Yamagata told them to secure our current position in Gona area, wait for the arrival of the second echelon of reinforcements and plan subsequent strategies. Yet the defenders around Gona village were reduced to only a hundred men. They kept fighting to the bitter end as the Australians chipped away at their defensive lines day by day. By the 16th, the Japanese were encircled. On the 17th, 68 AT grenade launchers brought a vicious attack that immediately destroyed a bunker containing a Juki and two light machine guns. It seems the 68 grenades were the straw that broke the Japanese camel's back. For on the 18th, the Australians swarmed through Gona village, taking out the remaining pockets of resistance with little opposition. Only a few Japanese survivors remained in hiding. Over at the Gona government station, the withdrawal was more orderly, and the wounded would be evacuated over sandbars or by a barge at night. The dead had to be buried outside the village. Many defenders had tried to escape east towards San Ananda, through the Australian lines or by swimming out into the ocean. Countless were cut down by Bren gunfire, and only a handful of experienced Takasago volunteers managed to break through towards Garua. Dirty received the long-sought report, Gona's gone. As the Australians moved through the precinct, the surrounding area was testimony to the horrifying conditions from which the Japanese had to live during the battle. Gona Beach was a filthy mess of rotting corpses, floating in lagoons, the oceans and swamps. Their mouths, Eyes and nostrils were filled with maggots. Despite the fact Gona was won, the Allies now had to deal with a new threat, General Yamagata's fresh reinforcements. 
Over in the Sandinanda front, the American forces continued to resist in the Huggins roadblock. The Japanese repeatedly attacked the roadblock, but they couldn't remove it, as other American forces began cutting their way through to it. By December the 8th, Huggins was wounded and evacuated to the rear, where he reported to his superiors on the conditions of the roadblock. The men were living in muddy foxholes in a 200 square meter area. Many were sick, with fever, their feet were rotting, food and ammunition and medical supplies were low, and the disposal of waste and dead was an extremely difficult problem. They were living off chlorinated water from a hole dug a meter deep, and the Japanese would often cut their communication wires and even tap the line a few times to listen in. By December the 13th, they had lost all radio and telephone contact, and none of their runners could get through. The Huggins situation was urgent, so Vasey quickly ordered Porter's 30th Brigade to relieve the worn-out 16th Brigade. Porter planned to hit the Japanese from the area south of Huggins Roadblock using two fresh battalions. After an artillery barrage, the 49th Battalion advanced through the bushes without any intelligence on the terrain and with a very short signal cable forcing them to use runners to communicate with command. They were met with a wall of Japanese machine gun fire, but they managed to overrun a number of Japanese positions and linked up with the 2 and 2nd Battalion after suffering a horrendous 229 casualties, around 48% of the battalion's strength. Porter then followed this up by sending the 55th and 53rd Battalions on their left, but its attack was a disaster resulting in 130 casualties for almost no gain. One step at a time, though, the Americans and Australians were taking Boonagona. I would like to take this time to remind all of you that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of Kings and Generals over at YouTube. Please go subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. And hey, don't forget about our sister podcast, Over at the Age of Conquest, the Fall and Rise of China podcast, written and narrated by me. And if after all that you are still hungry for some more history, why don't you give my personal channel a look, the Pacific War Channel over at YouTube, where I'm currently releasing a seven-part series on China's warlord era. With that, you get my ugly face, an animated battle map, and a ton of combat footage and cinematic footage. Give it a look, it'll mean a lot to me. The horrible battle for Boonagona raged on, costing countless American Australian, and Japanese lives. The villages of Buna and Gona were captured, spelling the doom that was to come for the rest of the Japanese defenders in the area.